Morning, everyone. Uh, Jonathan is going to start off by reading us um, quite a long section from Scripture, from the Book of Kings. But what a fantastic Scripture it is. Take it away, Jonathan. Okay, thank you. (laughs) 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 20. Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal did not answer. They shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he is sleeping, and must be awakened. So they shouted louder, and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name will be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the wood into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars, jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran round the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know who you are that you are Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishron Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said, Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is a sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he looked and went. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, the heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way out to Jezreel. 
Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey to the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had long enough, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. All at once the angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty, the Israelites, have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death on the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty, the Israelites, have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, and Abel Moloah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazal, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve seven thousand Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. That was brilliantly read. It was a very long passage. So uh, you'll remember that we've been looking at the subject of spiritual growth. And in recent talks, Andrew has mentioned the spiritual journey from first love through belonging, uh, through uh, serving, surrendering to the love of God and convergence and integration. And part of the reason for talking about these seasons is that we need to know where we are and uh, we need to be able to know the sorts of things that are going to help us respond to God when we experience different aspects of the journey. For each one of us, of course, moving through those seasons is a very unique experience because we're all differently wired and that means that we're going to, at some point, find ourselves being differently rewired. But the important point to take home in all of this is that we can um, the whole point behind it is that we draw deeper into God's love. So today, we're actually going to look at a transition period between seasons three and four. Now, you may have heard of the expression hitting a wall. And in the context that we're going to look at it today, uh, hitting the wall means experiencing a time of anguish. You could uh, describe it as the spiritual pain which comes from a feeling of abandonment. 
So seatbelts on, uh, enjoy, <laughs> and I'll try not to take you down with me. <laughs> um, but it is quite um, heavy stuff at times. Because that experience can mark the beginning of season four. And difficulties, of course, can come at any stage, but some people going through the wall uh, feels like it takes years. And it can be experienced as a very deep depression and loneliness. When we look back to season three, uh, we can see that that's taken up often by serving others and God in a way that appeals to a lot of us uh, who like to feel we're doing something. We feel a pull towards making things happen and seeing to it that the kingdom comes. Uh, that's to, not, to knock season three because a lot of very valuable work and prayer goes on at this time of life and some truly servant-hearted people will excel at this stage by giving their all. But season three can also be a, a time when uh, we can get stuck, especially if we're afraid of intimacy and vulnerability. Some of us find a false comfort in trying to earn through serving what we've already been given. And the invitation to go deeper can feel a bit threatening. So many people just don't ready, feel ready for that move towards vulnerability, and they're rather like a horse that refuses a jump. Uh, they go round again and recycle through the first few stages a few times. So if that is season three, then the bridge between season three and four could be summed up as a time of relinquishing control to a far greater degree than we have hitherto ever been asked to do. It can be brought about by um, external circumstances in our lives that we simply cannot control. We can, of course, always choose to bring ourselves to a place of vulnerability, but it's more likely that we will find out that God is going to bring us there anyway. So I'd like to look with you today at an extraordinary moment in Elijah's life, recorded in uh, Kings 18 and 19, when Elijah finds himself in exactly this situation in Beersheba, where he has really hit the wall. And this is not just uh, Elijah having a bad day or being down in the dumps. He is, in fact, in the grip of a suicidal depression. Now, many of uh, us will know that there are several reasons why someone can be hit by depression. Sometimes depression just hits for no reason other than your body and your chemical makeup. It's a very real, physical and emotional thing. There can be other reasons and triggers like postnatal depression, and doctors sometimes tell us that uh, depression is not uncommon in the case of um, heart surgery, which was the case with Robin Williams. So we can always experience bouts of depression brought about by various triggers, for example, extreme regrets in life. You know, sometimes you get to a point in life where you look back and you regret so much the mistakes you've made. You torment yourself because you've really screwed up. And it can be a failure in a relationship or a really bad decision you've made. Um, or maybe some kind of humiliation at work can bring on a depression. The US pastor Phil Leinberger said this, Depression is both ancient and universal. It is not a willful fault, nor is it a sin. It's a signal, however, that something is wrong. We need help and we need hope. So we need to bear that in mind when we look at the story of Elijah because although he had various character flaws like we all do, those flaws aren't the actual cause of his depression. 
And so it's in Kings 19.3 that we meet Elijah at his lowest point. And he's not the only person in the Bible to have suffered like this. Take a look at the roll call of other big names who've experienced this stretch of hopelessness. Moses, Job, Judas, David, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Samson, Saul, and of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus. This is what Elijah said. He went on alone into the wilderness, travelling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, because I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So what we see here is that Elijah seems to be that, uh, experiencing that extreme mental anguish that I spoke about earlier. The second thing to note is the point in his life at which Elijah experienced this depression. Have you noticed that he has just achieved the biggest highlight of his career as a prophet? So our first point is that depression can often come after very big achievements. And what an astonishing list of achievements it was. He prayed for rain, came after a seven-year drought, he had just called down actual fire from heaven. The nation of Israel had been turned back to God. He'd taken out a mere 850 pagan prophets in a showdown. And he developed this Jedi-like speed that outran the king's chariot. The experience of elation, followed by a crash, can be the same in our lives. Often we experience a tremendous discouragement after an outstanding achievement that has been hard fought for. So in this very particular instance with Elijah, there seems to be a number of things going on. As we've just heard in the reading, he was up against a Jezebel spirit. Now that is a particularly demonic, powerful force that's known for its attack on mental well-being, and it causes profound depression and often latches on to male leaders. So that was the first thing, but there were other things going on too. And if we step back and look into the last chapter what we can see is that there were hairline cracks appearing in Elijah's character, the same flaws that we all have. When you read the whole narrative of the fire scene, you have to conclude that along with his trailblazing faith, Elijah was not underblessed with self-esteem. The way he's goading the others and going out of his way with not one jar, ladies and gentlemen, not two jars, not three jars, but four jars of water that are filled up just to rub their face in the defeat and raise that miracle to its new level of impossibility. He was following instructions from God, but it is clear that he was loving the theatrical elements of the whole show and enjoying his enemy's humiliation. It's just a reminder, isn't it, that uh, when we're given a gift of faith or the gift of working miracles and wonders, we just have to be so careful in the way that we exercise it. The beginning of season four might be the point at which we have to discover that character is always more important than gifting. Another detail in the story that should raise alarm bells is in verse 22, because it comes just before Elijah calls down the fire. Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left. Now, the problem is, is that that is just not 
true. Because uh, back in the story early on, Obadiah had said to Elijah, haven't you heard, my Lord, that while uh, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. So for Elijah to know that, and yet to claim that he was the only prophet left, showed that his perspective was getting a little bit warped. Maybe he didn't think those other prophets were worth considering or involving because they were afraid for their lives, hiding away. Or it could be that, they, that he was actually uh, in a stage in his life where things were going very well on the surface, but actually he was just struggling with an intense inner loneliness that made him feel he was the only prophet left. R.T. Kendall points out that when Elijah comes out with this great porky pie, I'm the only one of the prophets left, God could have shouted out, stop, call off the whole show, we're not going on, Elijah, red card, time out, you and I need to have a little chat. And God could have decided to deal with his ego right there and then. But even though Elijah may have exaggerated his importance The fact is that God didn't stop those proceedings. He just let him go on. But later on in the story, when Elijah, uh, well, God has Elijah all to himself, he's able to minister to him incredibly gently. And that's the nature of God right there, that he will let us save face, but then say, Elijah, I need to talk to you about something. So the spectacular showdown takes place in which he calls down fire from heaven. And if that isn't extraordinary enough, he prays and prays for seven years' drought to come to an end. And sure enough, the black clouds begin to form. After all these ways he's been serving God, Elijah must feel that he's due some sort of affirmation and that God is really pleased with him. But what does he get instead? He gets a dreadful piece of hate mail from the most murderous, God-hating psychopath of them all, Jezebel, telling him that she's going to do everything in her power to ensure that he will be murdered within the next 24 hours. Not what he's expecting. He's been riding this wave, and now he is suddenly blindsided by this murderous threat. All that confidence gone in an instant. So he takes matters into his own hands. God clearly can't be trusted to look after him, and he flees, abandoning his post at a crucial moment. He's become like those prophets hiding up in the caves, feeling so terrified of Jezebel that he now has to go into hiding himself. Why is it that this moment in the story is so important? Because they are the actions of somebody who just 24 hours ago had been operating in tremendous faith. And that means that he had tremendous trust. He had trusted God to show up. And now he is trusting that God won't show up. It seems that the verbal threat from Jezebel has panicked him into falling for a lie. And the lie is that God was not able to look after him. And it's the same lie that attacks us today. When you're going through a depression, the lie is, you know, you... God is just not looking after you. You are not useful to him. You pathetic. I mean, look what you've become. Blah, 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 and on and on it goes. There are times when God appears to betray us, when things really don't work out, 
And Martin Luther used to say, you must know God as an enemy before you can know him as a friend. Now that's very uncomfortable to our ears because when all is going well and our prayers are being answered and you feel the presence of God and you're just on top of the world, that seems fine and real until one day you hit the wall. So what on earth is going on? You thought you had a friend and now it seems that God is working against you. So sooner or later, we find that everybody who develops a deeper spiritual walk is going to have to deal with this perceived betrayal barrier. And Elijah's response is to give up, praying that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he says. I must say this, which is that if you are going through a depression... Or and maybe you've just dragged yourself here to church today, please know this, and that is that God understands pain that we cannot fathom or understand. I know it sounds like one of those trite religious statements, but it just is the bottom line. It's true. Jesus will get you through it. It doesn't mean that we'll get through it uh, and feel 100% better. But all I can say is that he will get you through even the darkest valley. Now, one of the telltale signs of a coming depression is the tendency to isolate yourself. Um, if we read that Elijah, in 19.4, went to Beersheba, town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then he went on alone into the wilderness. So despite gaining that huge crowd at the showdown at Mount Carmel, Elijah instead isolated himself and cut himself off from the community. So our next heading is predictably, do not isolate yourself, because of course that is the knee jerk. It's the first thought when you're depressed. I just don't want anyone to know. We can be like an animal in pain that just crawls under a hedge and wants to be alone. Season four is a time when we naturally turn inwards for meaning. And people often withdraw from Christian ministry at this point to find the space that they need because others don't understand. At this sort of time, God can be stripping away old patterns of relating to him, and it can be very painful and draining. The energy that went into our false self must now go into doing honest inner work. Remember the phrase that Elijah utters at his lowest point. It tells us a lot about him. Let me die, I'm no better than my forefathers. Well, whoever said he had to be? Elijah has this false idea that he had to do one better than his forefathers, and that idea has to be stripped away. I think we all have a bit of us, a bit of that in us at some stage. We want to make our mark, and it comes out as our tendency towards self-promotion, perhaps, and to competition. It says in James 517, that Elijah was a man just like us. And in that respect, I think it's true, because we're all this maddening mixture of saint and sinner, aren't we? One moment, Elijah is bent to the ground in the most humble prayer, asking for rain again and again. And the next, he's grabbing back control from God and taking matters into his own hands. And of course, we are just the same. So God will use this season to restructure our inner lives, if we can surrender to him. A lot of it is just about letting ourselves be loved. Let's look at how God dealt with Elijah at this point. 
Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So in a very tender way, God wants to heal and restore Elijah. So he sends this angel twice to prepare a little meal on the desert sands. There's no upbraiding speech or reproach or threat of dismissal. It's just sleep and food. All we need to do is let God love us. It's as simple and as difficult as that. Our next heading then is, it helps to have an angel. Now I'm very open to the idea of a visitation from your actual angel, but if they're busy on other calls, I would happily settle for a visit from an angelic friend. Because having an angel, whether it's a friend, church family member, they can all do practical things. And it's that kind of practical help that really does make all the difference. Even if it's someone who will just go for a walk with you once a week or text you now and then to let you know you're not forgotten, it's incredibly affirming. Something that just gets you out of the house so that you realise you're not alone. And if you know somebody who is going through a depression, you have the opportunity to be this figure in their lives. But do remember that as Christians, it is not our job to try and explain what God thinks about their depression or to try and get God off the hook. Only God knows what is going on in the life of that person at that moment. So they need someone to talk to, but someone who can encourage them from a place of experience. When my uh, cat died two weeks ago, my wonderful neighbour, Valentina, showed up the next morning with a spade and she said, come on, we're going to bury him together. Um, I'll help you. I, I was just a bit shocked and I'd become completely sort of indecisive. I couldn't work out what to do. And it was just such a very kind, practical gesture uh, in sharing what is frankly a rather grisly job. Now, a moment ago, I was saying that those of us who are going through a depression, mostly want to be alone. But loneliness is the enemy of recovery. As human beings, we are not designed to do life alone. And we are designed, as we all know, to be alive with each other. So if you're going through this, or you know anyone who is, and this is touching a nerve, you need to know that you're in a church family that understands. Because at Vineyard, we have no interest in brushing stuff under the carpet and sticking on a happy serving face. Many people go through life having been brought up to never cry, never process traumas that they may have experienced earlier in life. They're taught to push it right down and get on with things. But that stuff is going nowhere. It's an outdated piece of death that is rotting away down there. And we need Jesus to deal with any death that is lodged within us that needs to be stripped away. There is that famous phrase, isn't there? God loves you just as you are, but too much to leave you like that. It's true, but it does require our cooperation. He's the only person who can expertly remove the emotional shrapnel that's lodged in our psyche and memories now, I think at the point in this story when I fell in love with Elijah is when an angel, no less, shows up and cooks him breakfast in bed and he eats it and then just rolls over and goes back to sleep. <laughs> Maybe um, that was a wake-up call for Elijah. 
maybe I should call my next cat Elijah. <laughs> so the angel has to come back again after he's had his lie-in, give him a little prod and say, now, come on, Elijah, it really is time to get up now. So our next heading then is get up and eat. We can take the sense of this verse in many ways. Just as we've discussed practical needs, we have to discuss spiritual needs. The fact is that we do need spiritual, spiritual food for our spiritual journey. And the angel's reminding us that we all need to take in some scripture. Otherwise, the life journey ahead will be too much for us. Scripture is like an activation key that releases so much blessing. So we can be doing our bit to help ourselves. Now that God had pulled Elijah up on his feet and got him moving again, he journeys on to Horeb, and it is time, finally, for the conversation. God starts off by saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah comes out with a CV of good works straight out of season three. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The trouble is, that's not the answer to the question that God is asking. Same old issue. The statement simply isn't true. The people of Israel haven't broken their covenant. Elijah had failed to remember that a whole mountaintop of people had just turned back to God, so he isn't the only one left. So God shows a side of himself to Elijah in an extraordinary way, though the sound, through the sound of a gentle whisper, and it's just so tender. And then he asks the question again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he gets the same answer back, like a broken record. Wrong answer again. What Elijah is really saying through this complaint is, I did my fair share of the bargain, God. I've served you, and now I'm getting killed for it. And anyway, what is the point if after all these years of service, the net result is a broken covenant, torn down altars, and all the prophets killed? I mean, what game is it we're playing here? So Elijah's not budging from his self-pity. He really does believe all this stuff he's coming out with, and that's the problem. His false beliefs are getting in the way of him seeing God as he truly is. He can't answer the question, what are you doing here? Because he doesn't know what he's doing here. And the reason he doesn't know that is because he doesn't feel he has a purpose. So God steps in and drives the point home for Elijah very explicitly. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came, go to the desert. When you get there, anoint Hazel, anoint Jehu, anoint Elisha, and I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, you've got a job to do, and I need you to go do this, this, and this. So no, Elijah, you're not going to be killed. You've got a future ahead of you, and you're not the only one. There are actually 7,000 who are operating out of the same integrity as you are. So our final point then is remember that you have a purpose that is tailor-made for you. We all have a purpose to live for. Knowing that can give you the hope that you need. Elijah went on to achieve amazing things and raised up another leader who achieved even more than he did. His journey wasn't over yet, 
and neither is ours. So I'm going to leave you with the last word to Winston Churchill, who was a well-known sufferer of the black dog. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Amen.